This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. <clears throat> it is good to be with you all this morning. It is Father's Day, so happy Father's Day again. Uh, and on this Father's Day, I'm actually going to be talking about leadership. Uh, and specifically, I'm going to be talking about leadership failures. Now, I think we can all point to bad leadership that has happened all around us. Maybe there was uh, a bad employer or a bad manager that you had, um, but we can certainly turn to politics. But I almost want to say that that is too easy to pick on. Because the problem with bad leadership is not just outside of the church, but it's also inside of the church. You can look at the horrifying accounts of sexual abuse cover-ups in the Southern Baptist Convention, you can read about the women coming forward from Ravi Zacharias Ministries, and you can look at the PCA's own 200-page domestic and sexual abuse report. PCA is our denomination here. Jesus said that there would be wolves in sheep's clothing, and that these wolves would be found out by their fruit. But when we see their fruit, often it is horrifying. Today we're going to see that the fruit of the tree is bad because the roots are in the wrong place. The tree that is bearing the fruit that we see that is rotten and vile and offends us uh, has roots deeper on idols of our hearts. But it's not just the leaders themselves. It's actually the people that follow them. We are all rooted into the same idols. We're going to look at two of these roots uh, that we can see in our passage today, reflecting on misplaced um, roots of our leadership, because it helps reveal the idols of our own hearts and our need for leaders with healthy roots. Because the reason that bad leaders or wolves can continue to gain positions of influence and power is, A, because their sheep disguises are pretty good, but it's also because we collectively attach ourselves to the same idols. We're going to see a failure of Saul's leadership because of his idols of pride and of manipulation. Now, uh, before we stand for the reading of God's word, uh, is my mic doing something weird? Is it kind of fading in and out? It's a new mic, so I'm going to blame it on that. Uh, they're working on it, I'm, I'm sure, but I just want to acknowledge it because I know it can be distracting and everybody's like, does he, does he know that's happening? I know, I'm, I'm hearing it. So at, at, with that, please stand for the reading of God's word. It comes from 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14, starting in verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and he dipped it in the honeycomb, and he put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they had found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxygen, oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. 
Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be on Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thumim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So today we're going to be talking about failed leadership, specifically failed leadership in churches. And there's a couple of things I want to acknowledge. Um, Today I might be speaking about some abuses and cover-ups that might seem general and abstract to some of you. Uh, But for those of you who have personally experienced bad leaders in churches, this might be particularly painful to hear. And I, I want you to know that you're not alone. There are many in this church that have shared with me their stories of bad church leadership. Many people have experienced it. I will try to be as sensitive as I can while honestly addressing the problems of church failures, and I hope that you will find it dignifying to your experience. But in case you don't, I really would like for you to talk to me about it. My contact information is in the bulletin, um, and this is going to sound like I'm running away from the problem a little bit because I'm going to be gone for the next couple weeks at a church conference. Um, But this church conference is for a denomination, and one of the things that we'll be talking about is actually uh, this domestic and sexual abuse report. I do really want to talk with you about it, even if we have to put a couple weeks distance. But that brings me uh, to my second point. I'm going to use examples that have been widely known and reported on, and They are from outside of our denomination. But I don't want you to think that I believe that Presbyterianism is immune to failed leadership because it is not. I do believe that our denomination has good structures of accountability, but no structure is immune to the sinfulness and creativeness of the human heart. I hope I'm not disproportionately castigating the SBC, Mars Hill, Robbie Zacharias Ministries, Hillsong, New York, without a somber reflection that in many ways I look up to these very same ministries. 
But I do hope that looking at their failure helps point us not only to the idols of our own hearts, but also how desperately we need a true and better leader. Okay, that being said, the bad fruit of our leaders, uh, when, when it comes to full fruition, we taste it and we know that it's bad. We know things have gone wrong. But we almost want to rewind and say, how can we prevent it? And we're going to have to look at the roots. So reflecting at where uh, the roots of the tree went that would give such fruit uh, helps us understand a little bit how these sorts of things can happen. We're going to see in Saul's failure of leadership today that two, two roots that can cause problems are the roots of pride and manipulation. Mark Driscoll was the pastor of what was Mars, Hills, Mars Hill Church in Seattle. Uh, he was a big-name pastor in my undergrad days. Uh, and there's been a recent podcast kind of outlining uh, many of the failures that happened in church leadership and accountability measures that eventually caused Mars Hill uh, and their 15-some campuses to disband over the course of like one year. Mark Driscoll's sermons were gripping and engaging, and often he was bringing people into the faith that would have never been willing to hear a message from a different personality. Now, there were many failures that the podcast highlights, but one that consistently sticks with me um, is the plagiarism one. So if you've listened to the podcast, you know what I'm talking about. You have some background. If you don't, I'm going to give you a little bit of background right now. In 2013, uh, rumors started to circulate uh, that one of the books authored by Mark uh, did not appropriately cite material that he used. And when called on it in an interview, Mark pleads ignorance, evades, attacks the interviewer, claiming that it was someone trying to tear him down a witch hunt. Don't you see all the good we're doing? He said, why are we talking about this little thing of citations? Ultimately, the reporter is asked to apologize because uh, nobody is sure if there is quite a basis. Um, upon later reflection, we find out that the institution behind uh, the reporter uh, and the institution of Mark Driscoll's church are one and the same. What we find out ultimately is that Mark had plagiarized and incorrectly cited material a research assistant was blamed for negligence, but we find out later that the research assistant had actually provided the correct citations and they had been uh, deleted or neglected to be put together. Now, what I find fascinating about all of this is that it seems from all of the publishers who recognized uh, that material was uh, incorrectly cited from, from their own material, you know what I'm saying? So it's like publishers are defending their material. Um, most of the time in Christian circles, when uh, honest mistakes happen, uh, they're willing to forgive the people that come up and say, hey, uh, I did do that. That does come from there. Uh, I need to fix it. I'll go back to my publisher and try to make it right as, well, as much as I can. Please forgive me. And I don't understand why Mark in that interview couldn't have told the lady it, with his same point to say, hey, you know, uh, I think this book is doing a lot of good. It's stirring a lot of conversation. It's pointing a lot of people to Jesus. And, and I it's probably likely that I miscited something. Can you send me that information? Because I want to send that to my publisher. I don't think that would have detracted from him at all. And yet, the route that Mark Driscoll takes is a defense of his own pride. Do you know what I'm doing? Why would you try to undermine me? Maybe much like Ravi Zacharias is quoted saying to some of the women um, that he abused, he said that if you came forward, you would detract from the power of my ministry. The root of pride was bearing really bad fruit. But it wasn't just the root of pride for the leaders themselves. Uh, it was also the people that surrounded him. Um, now, I, I want to be careful. I'm going to say this again later, too. We're speaking in a collective sense. 
because we're all guilty of the root of pride. The problem with us and why we can create systems where prideful leaders uh, are, are platformed and given an ability to take advantage of people is because we ourselves want the success that they offer. Because make no mistake, Mark Driscoll was successful. It felt good to be part of that story. A part of a story of a church that was changing lives, growing rapidly, entering new spheres, reaching unreached people groups. They were dependent upon his personality for their continued success. And success is what mattered. To reach people with good books that pointed them to Jesus and sermons that changed people. The bad fruit of plagiarism and defense of it had its root in the pride of the leader, but it was supported by the pride of the people in their leader. Saul's failure of leadership is much the same. It's rooted in his own pride, but also the pride of the people and the leader that is like the other nations. If you'll remember some of our uh, previous sermons on 1 Samuel, this will be helpful. Here's the story. Uh, Saul was supposed to be king, but he doubted it. God gave him signs, and he ignored them. He was supposed to attack Agarin of the Philistines, but his son Jonathan has to do it some three years later. This provokes a war. Israel is severely outnumbered. Saul is panicking, as well as his people, um, and so Saul's supposed to wait for Samuel to make sacrifices, but he can't wait that long, and so he makes the sacrifices himself. But instead of pursuing the army after making the sacrifices, his son Jonathan again has to take the lead to go attack the Philistines, even though they're severely outnumbered. And only when Saul sees Jonathan having some form of success does Saul, in our passage, say, yes, we should go. And that alone may have been like, well, that's not great leadership, but he adds to it by making a stupid oath. No man should eat anything until I'm avenged on my enemies. And there, if you can catch it, in the pronouns. This will become important for Saul later too. The pronouns are important. No man should eat until I am avenged on my enemies. If you were to go back in chapter 14, you'd see how Jonathan talked about attacking the enemies of God. Not his own personal enemies. Saul's pride was coming to the forefront there. But you know why the people went along with Saul's pride? Because there was apparent victory. They had the Philistines on their heels. This was their chance to use the king that they had demanded, the king like the other nations, that they had assumed um, that because God was giving them success, that God was smiling down on them. But in reality, their connection to the same root of pride blinded them to the first budding of really bad fruit. And it's going to get worse for Saul. Part of the reason that we can be blind to the first budding of really bad fruit in church leadership is because we're connected to the same idols. We want the success to be there. We're willing to overlook the first fruits, to neglect investigating further, to pass them on and say, no, that just, that just can't be true, to ignore claims. It seems to be that that's the route that Mars Hill took with Mark Driscoll. Success blinded them to the bad leader that they had. But it wasn't just the leader's pride. It was the people's own desire for success. To be part of that great story, that great act of deliverance, they could be deceived into bad fruit because they shared the same root idol. But pride is not the only dangerous root that we will see today. We will also see manipulation. Now, this is abundantly clear in our passage, but as we're going to find out, it's actually harder to discern um, kind of in our situations today. 
See, Saul leveraged a spiritual thing, fasting. Fasting is a spiritual thing, right? And he leveraged this, this spiritual thing to play on the people's desires. It sounds really holy to do, but this spirituality didn't bear good fruit because it was tapped into the root of manipulation. Saul attempted to manipulate God by trying to do something holy, and he definitely manipulated the people by convincing them that if they did something holy, that God would fight for them. Just to make it really clear, here's what Saul said. He said, you're going to go chase down this army. Now, the distance between the two cities that he lists in our passage um, is about 20 miles. So I just, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about being laden with armor, running 20 miles, every once in a while having to do like 50 burpees, because that's when somebody's like jumping out to attack you, right? And then you're having to attack somebody else, and you're pursuing these people for 20 miles. And along the way, the people said, you cannot eat. We're going to be super holy. We're going to defeat these people by doing something that is supernatural. Saul thinks that what God seems to require is great acts of sacrifice, superhuman spirituality. He expects an army to fast while pursuing an enemy. But his superstitious spirituality actually undermined the very thing that he wanted. Uh, In trying to manipulate the people to fight harder, he actually undermined uh, the very energy that they needed to pursue the Philistines harder. This is what Jonathan says in verse 30, right? He says, how much better would it have been if they could have eaten the honey? Because we haven't done this, our defeat against the Philistines isn't as great. But not only this, It shows again in that Saul set the stage for his people to sin against God. Weary, by the time the sun goes down and the day has ended, they now look out and they say, we have these spoils of war, let's eat them. And so they kill the animals and maybe cook them a little bit, but they're still eating with blood in it, which was a sin against God. It wasn't sin to eat honey along the way, but it was a sin to disregard the commands of the Lord. The root of manipulation towards Saul's own pride caused the people to sin against the Lord in a way that was unnecessary. The Lord had provided sustenance for them. What's worse than this is that Saul doesn't even actually take ownership of this foolish vow, but he blames the people in verse 33. He says, you've done a foolish thing. Like, you set him up, man. Now, this kind of manipulation is abundantly clear in our passage, but it's actually harder to identify here and now in our lives. Um, manipulation in spiritual language is, is actually really easy to do, really difficult to identify. The problem with spiritual manipulation is that we actually desperately want the manipulation to work. And here's, here's what I mean. We really want to be able to know that if we do certain things, God must do other things. We really want to know that if we do really spiritual acts, like fast for 40 days, that God must be on our side. We are so willing to, be, to hear manipulative language because we want to manipulate God. What I find interesting about Jonathan's response when he's told about this vow Um, in verse 29, is how he can say how much better in verse 30, I think. Jonathan could see how much better everyday spirituality was, how much better uh, the sustenance that God provided along the way was. 
in thanking God for the honey that he provided. You guys have heard of the story of the drowning person in the boats, right? It's like there's somebody drowning, and a boat comes up, and they're like, hey, we can save you. And he's like, no thanks, God said he was going to save me. And he gets two more boats, the same thing happens. He eventually drowns, right? And at the gates of heaven, he's standing before God, and he's like, God, why didn't you save me? You told me you were going to save me. And God says, I sent you three boats, you dummy. We're blind to the way that God provides for us here and now. We want something supernatural. We want something super spiritual. We believe that God desires so much um, uh, from us, so much sacrifice from us, that we can manipulate what he does. Now, I want to be careful here. Acts of fasting, praying, uh, your devotional reading time can truly be holy. Uh, You've heard me encourage these things in other sermons. I'm not saying you shouldn't do them. What I'm saying is, is that if the root of your heart is tapped into manipulating God, as in, if I pray enough, God will do what I want, you're not really using that spiritual devotion and time appropriately. You're tapped into the wrong root. If we are rooted into manipulation, we will use spiritual acts of devotion to try to get something from God. Instead of using spiritual acts of devotion as an opportunity um, to ask God to show him who he, show us who he is more clearly. We go to scripture trying to find like crazy spiritual answers instead of going to scripture to try to figure out who God is and how he works in the world. Jonathan seemed to understand God gave us this honey. It's right here. The mature Christian doesn't fight for super spiritual snake handling, walking on water, or even a monastic life. We don't have to believe that being, we don't actually believe that being a monk makes you more holy, that denying yourself impresses God, or that prayer at 2 a.m. is more holy objectively than prayer at 2 p.m. We subtly believe these things because we believe that God recognizes how difficult they are and must reward them. Spiritual manipulation. We are willing to follow leaders that manipulate us with extravagant spirituality because we desperately want God to owe us. We desperately want to be able to manipulate God. Now, again, I want to pause here at this point and recognize that if you've been manipulated by a church leader... I'm not shaming you or saying that you bear some responsibility. We recognize here that the failure is on Saul. And on an individual level, we always recognize that the leader is the one to blame. But as a collective level, as we ask ourselves the collective question of how these people continue to gain access to leadership, we must ask ourselves why we're willing to turn a blind eye to spiritual manipulation. The roots of pride and manipulation are deep-seated in the human heart. And often we cannot see uh, where the roots go until they bear fruit. That's, that's actually what Jesus says if you, were, uh, if you were to go to Matthew 7 there and read when he talks about wolves and sheep's clothing. Uh, there's wolves and sheep's clothing, and it seems like the sheep's clothing is so good that you'll struggle to see them until the fruit has been born. There had been early hints of budding fruit that maybe some people saw. Maybe some people caught the pronouns and they were like, eh. That's a little interesting. Like he wants to go defeat his enemies and not God's enemies. Um, you can see it a little bit with Jonathan when he recognizes the foolishness of the vow that Saul had took. But the fruit hadn't really come into its fullness yet. Uh, we have this star fruit tree in our backyard. Um, and until the fruit turns yellow, it's actually really difficult to find the fruit because it's green and it kind of matches the leaves. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure that's the way God made it so that the birds don't eat it too fast or whatever, right? But um, it's really hard to see that fruit until it comes into its fullness. But as soon as it's yellow, you can spot it, right? 
Saul's fruit comes into its fullness at the end of our reading. You see, Saul's pride and manipulation comes back. He wants to go back into battle in verse 36 at night, which is uh, not very wise, especially in the day, um, in the day that they were fighting with swords and stuff. Uh, But a priest wisely says that they should seek the counsel of the Lord. And the Lord does not answer Saul. Saul is furious. And in his pride, again, he makes a manipulative oath to strike fear into his constituency. And he says, someone's going to die for this. Now, we don't understand all the details of Umim and Thumim. Um, You guys have probably heard of casting lots. Well, we're going to suffice it to say that the the Lord... uh, never guarantees uh, that we're going to understand his will through following these. Um, And yet it seems that the Lord works through this passage. So we're going to leave that there. Talk about that another day. Um, In this case, the lot ultimately falls on his son, Jonathan. Now Saul, again, had promised to kill whoever had sinned. And it seems that Jonathan had. Now I wonder, like, can you imagine the horror that Saul had to feel right there? I wonder if Saul then saw the foolishness of his vow, but if he felt honor bound before God to follow through. And whether he did or did not, or whether he was blinded in his own rage because he he couldn't continue attacking his own personal enemies, he seems to proceed forward with the murder of his own son. Now this is actually a really interesting test case for us as we're talking about kind of manipulative spirituality um, because as Christians we believe that vows matter and especially vows made before the Lord and that they shouldn't be broken. This is why we take our marriage vows and our ordination vows so seriously. Are we bound to take all of our vows so seriously? Is Saul bound to follow through? Well, I'd say yes, he is bound to take his vow seriously. But no, he's not bound to follow through. You see, the people actually show us what Saul should have done. The people see that rotten fruit of the murder of an innocent man, and they say, no more. No more pride, no more manipulation. Do not put this godly man to death because of your own foolish vows. Even if that means that we have to work through how our own hearts are rooted to the idols of pride and manipulation, even if that means that we believe we might be giving up success before the Philistines, even if that means that we're not so sure um, uh, that that God's going to fight on our side because we don't know how to manipulate him, we will let go of all of this and cast ourselves upon the mercy of God and not continue in our sin. Here's how we take vows seriously. We seriously cast ourselves upon the Lord's mercy to forgive us for participating in foolish vows. When we, when we make foolish and stupid vows before the Lord, and I don't know about you, I've made them. They usually go something like this. You know, Lord, I really want this thing to happen. I really want this date with this girl to happen. You know, I feel, I feel like this is when I made most of these promises. Um, and so, uh, Lord, I will give up X, Y, Z thing if this, just, if this just happens. If she just says yes foolish vows. Now, often those things I was promising were things I should have given up anyway because they were sin. Um, But that's another story. The people intercede on Jonathan's behalf. And so on verse 45, the people ransomed Jonathan that day. And so he did not die. When the people saw the rotten fruit of their leader, they refused to double down with their leader and follow through on the vow that he had made. What they did was they accepted that their leader had failed them. It is exceptionally difficult for us to accept that our leaders have failed us. 
It's exceptionally difficult. Not only because our roots are in pride and manipulation, but also because in many ways I'm sure we've grown to love aspects of them. But we have to learn from God's people here that when our leaders fail us and the fruit comes true, we have to accept that they failed us. Now, we not only need to accept that they failed us, but we also need to be taught to desire better leaders. Leaders that aren't like the other nations, that aren't rooted in their pride and religious manipulation. God had told the Israelites that a king like the other nations would fail them, and they were being taught to desire a better king. Now, King David would come along, and he would be a better king, but he would still fail his people. And if I'm fast-forwarding a little bit in the story, and you don't know the, the story of King David, just keep reading in First Samuel, and you'll, you'll figure this out. Um, when, when David fails and he's called on it, he doesn't double down in his sin. He repents. Still a leader that has failed. Still lost a mountain of respect among his people. Still caused untold controversies in his household for generations. But the difference between Saul and David is that David could repent Accepting that our leaders have failed us is hard, but it allows us to repent. It allows us to investigate how we've supported them, to pursue a better king. Now, David wouldn't be this ultimate better king. Uh, Jesus would be. Jesus would claim to be a king, but he was far from the kings like the other nations, and far like any, uh, way different than any other king anybody had ever seen. He was of lowly birth, meek and mild. He would be falsely accused, beaten, tortured, and eventually murdered for his claims. But he was the only leader in all of human history to have pure and true roots. He didn't have mixed motives, wasn't caught up in pride or manipulation. Not only would Jesus be this kind of leader, but he would bear the full weight of bad leadership because the people in charge around him, um, their bad leadership would come to full fruition on display as they stand there accusing an innocent man and sentencing him to death. Their pride and manipulation was available for everyone to see, even now as we turn back through our New Testaments. An innocent man standing execution, but unlike Jonathan, there would be no ransom for Jesus. All of us would turn away, turn back to the idols of our own hearts. Unwilling to actually stand up for what is right, we would double down in our own sin. Being blinded to the light, we would prefer the darkness in our own bad leadership. We would prefer rotten fruit to Jesus. In John 15, Jesus calls himself the vine. And he calls us the branches and his father the vine dresser. And his father takes the branches that don't bear fruit and he throws them into the fire. And the only way to bear good fruit, according to Jesus in this passage, is to be tied into the true vine that is rooted in true and pure things. And then you will bear good fruit. This good fruit, Jesus describes in John 15, is obedience to his commands. And the chief uh, uh, command that he lists is um, love one another as I have loved you. And he continues, in greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Now, we've talked about wolves in sheep's clothing, and you know the difference uh, between a wolf and a shepherd. A wolf is there to devour the sheep. But the good shepherd, says Jesus in John 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We need leaders who love us. We need leaders who lay down their lives 
for the sheep. They don't devour the sheep for their own pride and by their own manipulation. And the only leader to have ever done this truly and purely is Jesus. The only way to bear good and right fruit is to be connected to the true vine in Jesus and Jesus alone. None of our earthly leaders are the true vine, myself included. Don't root yourself into me and my teaching. Root yourself into Jesus and his teaching. Jesus is the true vine, and because he is the true vine, because he is the good shepherd that gave up his life for the sheep, because we finally have that king that we have so longed for, we can hold ourselves and others to account. We, like David, can repent in our sin. We don't have to double down and continue hiding it. We can say, in Jesus, in Jesus alone, we are saved. Brothers and sisters, when our earthly leaders fail us, let us learn from it and be redirected back to the good shepherd and the true vine, Jesus Christ. Now, I said that uh, when Jesus was standing trial, uh, that we all abandoned him, and it is true. He was left alone to suffer the full consequences of unjust leadership. But Jesus isn't vindictive about our abandonment of him. He came knowing that he would be abandoned. He came knowing that there would be no one to ransom him. He came not to ransom, not to be ransomed by us, but to ransom us. And not just from a foolish curse of an earthly king, from a curse much more serious, the curse of our own sin. And we know that he's not vindictive about it because he invites us to his table. And at this table is where we are told the story again of how he ransomed us. It was costly. His very body and his very blood. The good shepherd having laid down his life for the sheep. In the night that Jesus was betrayed, when his disciples had abandoned him, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples. As I am ministering in his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body which is broken you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the remission of your sins. Take and drink. Jesus is the true king, and he isn't manipulative, but he is serious. Um, it's a somber thing to partake of this meal. Uh, the New Testament will tell us that some people who took of it inappropriately got sick and died. And you know what's interesting about this is that these people were Christians and they were baptized. So if you've been here, maybe you hear me give this uh, warning every week of what we call fencing the table. Um, and it's where I, I remind people that if you are not part of Christ's body, if you've not been baptized into him, um, that this table is not for you. But it's not baptism alone. When you come to this table and you're partaking of a broken body and shed blood, Everyone is asked to consult and think, do I bow the knee to the true king? Or do I still prefer my earthly kings? Are we still rooted into pride and manipulation? Now the good news is, is that this body and this blood allows us to say, yes, we are and we repent. 
And if you say that that's you and you're repentant, you've been baptized into Jesus, then this table is for you to taste and know that the Lord is good. If that's not true, uh, it is not a condemnation. This is actually um, a warning for, uh, for your spiritual lives uh, to go and investigate who Jesus is and the claims that he makes. Come and talk to Kyle or I. We would love to help invite you to this table next week or in the weeks, weeks that come. Now, in a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we can come down the center aisle to these two serving stations on my right and my left. Uh, There's gluten-free bread available. Just notify your server if you need that. And then there's red wine and clear grape juice. Uh, Please take according to your conscience. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, you suffered under bad leadership, but you are the leader that we so desperately needed, but we couldn't see Lord, by the power of your Spirit, I ask that you would transform these elements of bread and wine, common, everyday bread and wine, to spiritual use. Lord, this isn't an extravagant meal, but is quite simple. Lord, this isn't pride on display, but love on display. That you, the good shepherd, would lay down your life for us, the sheep. We ask now that we might taste and see that you are good. Amen.